0: Peter's a scholar, a president, and a friend of this church. We're proud to have him here. A year ago, I thought, who could we get as an outside voice to speak on the 500th anniversary? I knew we couldn't get anybody next Sunday because they'd all be obligated. I said, Peter, is there a chance you could come the Sunday before? And he said, yes. Peter Lilbeck, we're so glad you're here. No, I count it a great honor to uh, have worked with uh, your senior pastor on the board of Westminster Seminary now for several years, and it's truly a privilege to be in this pulpit. And on behalf of all the folks at Westminster, I want to thank Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster for your extraordinary generosity as a local congregation for the work of our seminary. You have faithfully, regularly, and extremely generously supported our work. You are one of the exemplars of local churches who believe in seminary education, And I want to thank you all. We really appreciate your generosity, and it means the world to us. As you know, we are coming at this time to the study of the Reformation as this anniversary of 500 years has come upon us. And I think we all realize that there are very few things in human history that are remembered 500 years afterwards. And this is one of these moments. And so we want to take some time and understand why it happened, and it surrounds the life of Martin Luther, the great Reformer. And we want to look at it from the passage that he tells us was absolutely foundational for what God did in his life that made the Reformation possible. So for that reason, I'd like you to turn with me in Romans to the first chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'll read on through verse 17. We'll especially be looking at verses 16 and 17, but the context is very important, and therefore we want to hear it and uh, follow along with that as we carefully pay attention to God's Word. So allow me then to lead you in the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 through verse 17, and please hear and follow along with God's holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant Word. Paul. Paul to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together now. Lord, would you please now apply these extraordinary words that have changed history to our hearts? Would you help us to hear your spirit as our teacher and that thereby we might grow and continue to carry on the work of the great reformation begun by the Apostle Paul through Christ our Lord. Amen. As you know, we measure our lives in time. Various anniversaries have significance in our lives. I was looking at your worship bulletin and I noticed this is the jubilee year of this church. 50 years in the uh, life of ministry. All of us can think of different anniversaries of life. Maybe sweet 16 comes to mind, 18, or 21, or like me, 65, which is now in the rearview mirror. I can look back at that. I'm officially a senior. I'm taking advantage of it when I go get my cup of coffee. Make that a senior's charge, please. Uh, Major events in life are reflection points for measuring history. In fact, many dates without us even loving history. In fact, you might be like the young student who said, I'm not studying history. There's no future in it. Why should I waste my time on what's in the past? Well, stop and think about these dates. I bet we all could agree that we know what they stand for. 1492. Oh, yeah, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? How about 1776? Those Philadelphia 76ers. How about 1945? or 2001. But each of those years carry significance and we can identify them in our mind and so it ought to be with 2017 that brings us back 500 years on October 31st to 1517. Because it was on this date that a very minor act by an obscure German monk occurred that was unwittingly intended to change the world. It was that day that he nailed his 95 theses to the bulletin bird of Wittenberg, Germany. It was the church door of the castle church. He had no idea that what he was doing would have significance 500 years later, but it did. Because it was the first domino to fall in an unbroken chain that has brought us to Westminster Presbyterian Church, that has brought us to Westminster Theological Seminary that has brought us to the Westminster Confession of Faith. None of these would have existed without the beginning of a Reformation that Luther launched in his desire to challenge a very common practice of selling indulgences. In fact, it had even the papal support behind it. Now, his movement, he didn't know it at the time, was going to become known the Protestant movement, Protestant theology. Now, while Protestants come in all shapes and sizes, if they remain true to their distinctives, there are certain key ideas that they share. And you probably could share them quickly if you just pause for a moment. One is called sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Another is solus Christus, Christ alone. Another is sola Fide* by faith alone. Another is sola gratia, by grace alone. Another is called soli Deo Gloria, to God alone belongs the glory. Undoubtedly, you've heard of the priesthood of the believer. Maybe you've heard the motto, tota scriptura, all of Scripture. Sometimes we hear the motto, semper reformanda, always reforming according to the Word of God. This is classic Protestant theology. It explains what makes us who we are rather than being Roman Catholics. We are Protestant for these reasons. Now, I love a quote that I use from time to time because of its stark language that comes from a 1539 sermon that Martin Luther gave. So this is some years after the Reformation. But you can hear the boldness with which he is preaching. And as he's preaching this... He looks at baptism, which is absolutely common to everyone in the Christian church. Uh, That is part of the Christian experience. And so he says this as he's preaching, Look at baptism. It is water. Where does the hallowing and the power come from? From the Pope? No, it comes from God, who says, He who believes and is baptized. For the Pope puts trust in the consecrated water. Why, Pope? Who gave you the power? The ecclesia, the church? Yes, indeed. Where is that written? Nowhere. Therefore, the consecrated water of this tradition is nothing less than Satan's goblin bath. Did you hear that? Let me repeat that. Baptism is Satan's goblin bath, which cripples, blinds, and consecrates the people without the word. But in the church, one should teach and preach nothing beside or apart from the Word of God. For the pastor who does the baptizing says, It is not I who baptize you. I am only the instrument of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not my work. And so Luther is saying, that which we do without the Word of God is Satan's work. Baptism is Satan's goblin bath, not the image of the cleansing of a soul through the blood of Christ and the pouring out of His Spirit. On this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I think it's appropriate we might ask, where did Luther's great Reformation come from? And I would suggest we can follow this with four thoughts that come from our text in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The first thing that we must realize is that those two verses present the Reformation biblically grounded by Paul 1,500 years before Luther. So first, we're going to take a look at that text and try to capture what Paul is saying. Secondly, we're going to consider Romans 1, 16 and 17 and consider how it launched the Reformation 500 years in the past. That is yesterday, long ago, 500 years before us, because of its strategic role in the conversion of Martin Luther. Luther will tell us that this text is absolutely foundational for his own conversion. And thirdly, we're going to consider briefly how Romans 1, 16 and 17 helps continue the Reformation today. Why the Reformation still matters, because it's based on these verses and what it means for us at this moment. And then finally, we're going to consider how Romans 1, 16 and 17 points the way forward to the Reformation tomorrow. We can ask the question, will there be a Reformation 1,000, a half a millennium from now? Will this issue of the authority of God's Word as the basis for the church still be foundational? Well, what we do today will help to determine what will happen tomorrow. Let's look again at those verses in Romans chapter 1. As we take a careful look at this uh, passage that presents the biblical foundation of the Reformation for Luther 1,500 years earlier in the writings of Paul, I want you to notice the word for. Now, in English, that's not F-O-U-R, the number, but it's for, F-O-R, which is a causal word. We could... Translate it because. It's giving a reason for something, the rationale. Notice in verses 16 through 17, Paul will use this word for three times in this way to give an explanation. He wants to explain what's going on. So we've read the context. As he's writing to the church in Rome, he's basically saying, listen, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. I've never been there. I hear there's some believers there. I know you're in the middle of the great imperial power. I know it's filled with paganism. I know that Christianity is just a fledgling little body. But I want to come and preach to you. I want you to share in my gifts, and I want to share in your gifts. I'm eager to do it. Why? Why does Paul so want to go to Rome? He tells us in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... He says, I want to come to the center of human civilization and proclaim the euangelion, the good news of Jesus, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead to give life, the one who reconciles God and man, the one who appeases the wrath of God against sinners. I want to preach that in Rome. I am undaunted by the emperor's power. I am not afraid of the paganism that will stand against me. I'm not worried about persecution. I long to come... Why? Because, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm going to preach the gospel because I want people to know I delight, and I'm, by God's grace, an adherent of the most important message in the history of the world. Now, why is that? For, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, this is our second guard, our second reason He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, here's logic, I want to preach in Rome. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's God's power unto salvation. The word for salvation here for our theologians is where we get the word soteriology. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it gives us the doctrines of how men and women are rescued from sin to have everlasting life with God. That whole process, I want you to know this is where the power comes from. The gospel is what is powerful, and that is why I want to preach it. That is why I'm not ashamed of it, because it has the power to reconcile sinners with God. And then notice thirdly, he will mention a third gar. He says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. And then in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What he is saying is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's powerful. And for it reveals the very need that human beings have before a holy God when they are sinners. And that is the righteousness that God gives from faith unto faith, a faith-based rightness with God. Paul will go on and say in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But there is a way to be right with God even though we are ungodly, even though we are sinners, even though we've fallen short of the glory of God. And this is this good news of the gospel. It is the righteousness of Christ. And he says, this is what the Word of God says. Paul says, I find it in Habakkuk 2.4, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, this is so clear to us, isn't it? We all know this. But Luther did not know this. He did not understand this. And the reason is, is that Luther lived in a time when the theology that surrounded his entire church taught that God only blessed those who did their very best. God would not withhold grace to those who do what is within them, that is their best. For our Latinists today, it goes like this, faciendibus se est Deus non de negat gratiam. But if you're not a Latinist, you can just ignore that. He said, I'm an expert, so I had to show you I'm an expert. There you go. Now, what does that mean? It meant God graded on a curve. You know how the bell curve works? You know, if you uh, get kind of… You're only 50 percent, but you're halfway there, so we're going to give you a passing grade. That's how some of us got through some tough math classes, right? Okay, well, in this system, they said, you don't even have to get to the 50 percent mark. You just need to do your best. If you do your best, it will be enough, and God's grace will take over and finish it the rest of the way for you. Now, that sounds great. The only problem is that what if you have that sensitive conscience that was so important for Luther, where he said, I don't know if I did my best. Maybe I could have fasted a little more. Maybe I could have prayed a little longer. Maybe I could have done another good work. Maybe I could have beat myself a little bit more to mortify my sins. Maybe I could confess another time. He said, I don't know that I've done my best He always felt he came short. And God only helps those who do their best. This caused Luther to be terrified by the idea of the righteousness of God. Now, this may sound too strong, but this wonderful biblical gospel passage that we've heard was something that Luther hated. He hated this verse. In fact, if you want to hear it, Listen to what he says in a 1545 statement. This is just a year before he dies. And he's now describing in one of his writings his own experience. This is a wonderful autobiographical insight into the man who changed history 500 years ago. He's looking back at what was going on in his heart. And listen along. It's an extended passage, but try to hear this personality and how this great gospel passage was not gospel to him. It was a sense of God's condemnation that rusted upon his soul. He writes like this, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about my heart that kept me from studying it, but a single word in chapter 1 of Romans, the phrase, in- it, the righteousness of God, is revealed. That phrase stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I've been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The phrase the righteousness of God for Luther meant God is perfectly right, and that means that He judges people who aren't right. And He said, Man, I'm in trouble. I don't want to study that, but I have to. I'm a student of the Bible. What am I going to do? He goes on to say, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that He was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with His righteousness and wrath. For Luther, this gospel righteousness was further judgment from God. He says, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. Can you hear him? He's he's knocking at the door. He what does this text mean? Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He agonized over Romans 1, 16 and 17. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He through faith is righteous, shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning... The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. I love this next phrase. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me, Thereupon I ran through the Scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God, with which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Now this conversion turns us then to a very important concept that Luther would have us learn as the beginning of the Reformation was before him. He said, It's not my works of righteousness that make me right with God. It's God's righteousness in Christ received by faith. He would describe it as "As sinners. We are beggars reaching out our hands to a king to receive a gift that we don't earn and we don't deserve. He said, The active righteousness of doing enough to please God, doing your best, will never achieve it. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about an active righteousness. It's about an alien righteousness. A righteousness that we are passive in, but Christ is absolutely active in. It is Christ's perfect righteousness, His suffering, His resurrection, all of that given to us. And we simply receive That which we could never have done. That's why it's called the Evangelion, the Gospel, the Good News. It is the heart of the evangelical, the Good News people. We are praising God that God did for us what we can never do. And so, as we think about this passage, then, for some of you today, have you come as a beggar before the Supreme Judge of the world? Have you recognized that your sin has merited God's judgment and wrath? Do you realize that God is angry against sin and sinners? That His wrath is being revealed? But have you come and said, Lord, I have nothing? Like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Have you cried out to Christ and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, for Christ's sake? Jesus, You lived where I failed. You obeyed where I have disobeyed. Jesus, You bore the wrath I deserve that I might have the life You earned. You rose again from the dead to conquer the curse that takes me to the grave that I might live forever. If You had the beggar's hands that have come before the Lord and said, Please, Lord, let me have this gift. That's the good news. And it's for You. And that's why 500 years later we should be celebrating the fact that we've rediscovered the good news that God who is holy is yet gracious and He has given this to us for Christ's sake. Now, as a result of this, Luther is going to address this practice of buying indulgences. Indulgences become very important. They are being used in different ways to get people out of purgatory, to cancel out future sins. And while there's so many that we could use, let me just highlight a few. I imagine my sermon points. I'm going to go through all 95 today. That's almost like 200 pages of footnotes, right? So we won't do that. But just a few, because you've got to hear Luther, right? I like number 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest... The soul flies out of purgatory. Can you hear a tetzel, the great hawker of indulgences? As soon as the coin in the coffer clinks, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs. It rhymes in German and English. That's wonderful, isn't it? But it's human doctrine. In fact, Luther will go on to say this with some strong language. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. That's number 32. And I I like some of the others. I don't have time for all of them, but that would be a good homework in this uh, anniversary year. Go back and read the 95 Theses. You can get them on the Internet everywhere. They're there, right? Okay, let me just read this, uh, 82 and 86. They're among my top ten of the 95 theses. Okay. Why does the Pope not simply empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an, an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The, mo, the former reason would be most just. The latter is most trivial. You see what he's saying? If the Pope can get people out of purgatory, why does he make them pay for it? Why does he just do it because he loves their souls? Do you see why the gold stopped flowing from Germany down to Italy? This makes a lot of sense. He's really going after it. 86. Why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest man, build this one Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? saying, why is he stealing the bread and the shoes from the poor people to build a church when he can do it with all of his treasures? Why doesn't he just give them the gift of the gospel? And so the righteousness of Christ is offered to sinners. By faith alone it's received. As we conclude, we've considered what Paul taught. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He wanted to preach it because he knew it had power because it brought righteousness. This is what Luther discovered. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to preach it because it is something that has power to save because it brings this beautiful word of righteousness. Not the ugly word of judgment, but judgment salvaged into righteousness through Christ. Well, thirdly, does the Reformation continue today? Here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, are we still preaching a gospel of sola scriptura? Scripture only. Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Whenever you find a day when Pastor Rogers comes to this pulpit and the Bible's not present, you might need to say, it's time for you to go, sir. This pulpit is a place where the Word of God is preached. When there is a sermon preached and the redeeming work of Christ is not extolled, say, what is wrong with this church? This pulpit has lost sight of its central message. These are the things that mean the Reformation is a lie. But you in the pew who hear this message, because I know that Dr. Rogers preaches this great gospel, are you ashamed of the gospel? Have you spoken of it? Have you shared it? Is it the passion of your heart? Are you convinced that souls are lost without Christ and therefore you want them to know the power of the gospel, that without this Christ there is a judgment, the wrath of God is coming, that unless they hear this good news, there is no good news. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Only the gospel does this. And when we come to church, are you wanting to this to be a place where you feel better about yourself? Where you're more comforted and everything is a little bit happier? Now those are not bad things. But that's not why we come here. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The reason you come here is solely Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. That's why we're here. It's all about Christ. And so... Uh, All I can say is if we hope when we are long gone and 99.99% of us will be forgotten except for Pastor Rogers who will not be forgotten. When the year 1000 comes, there'll still be a gospel message because we passed it on to the next generation. And we kept it alive today. So as we conclude I want you to hear one of the wonderful ways that Luther describes how we become one with Christ by faith. The beauty and the unity that ought to fill the hearts. In one of his early writings in 1520, it's called The Freedom of the Christian. He talks about faith being a wedding ring. So I know when you look at your wedding ring, it has a symbol to you, and that's good. It should have a symbol to you of the one you're married to. But I want you now to look at your wedding ring and, as a believer in Christ, add a meaning to it. Listen to what Luther tells us about the wedding ring of faith. He says, By the wedding ring of faith he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, Christ makes them his own and acts as if they were his own and as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell, that he might overcome them all. Now since it was such a one who did all this, and death and hell could not swallow him up, these were necessarily swallowed up by him in a mighty duel. For his righteousness is greater than the sins of all men, his life stronger than death, his salvation more invincible than hell. Thus the believing soul, by means of the pledge of its faith, is free in Christ its bridegroom." free from all sins secure against death and hell and is endowed with the in- eternal righteousness life and salvation of Christ its bridegroom so he takes to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle cleansing her by the washing of water with the word this is the word of life that by faith brings righteousness and salvation in this way he marries the soul of the believer and faith steadfast love and in mercy's righteousness and justice on this reformation anniversary if you happen to have a wedding ring or if you happen to have another ring you bear or a symbol of something that's precious consider your faith is the wedding ring of Christ to you he loves you he's redeemed you And because of His love that sought you out, He's asking you now to be a faithful bride to Him, to follow in gratitude. And the way we do that, by soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let us conclude with this prayer. Even as Martin Luther prayed these words in a different way long ago, Lord, I would use them now for these brothers and sisters here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. So, Lord, we pray for the growth in the Word and the growth of the Word against our adversary. Satan is strong and evil, and he's also very furious and savage, for he knows his time is short and his kingdom of falsehood is endangered by the gospel. But may God confirm in us and especially in this congregation, what he has accomplished, and perfect his work, which he began in us, through Christ to his glory. Prayed on October 22nd in the year 2017. Amen. And so may on this 500th anniversary of the Protestant faith, may we all say, Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.